I joined the National Women's Soccer League as their first ever commissioner. I joined on uh, March 8th and I shut the league down on March 10th due to COVID. Building back block by block our game plan and no one had the playbook for it. We were the first ones back. We were the first ones to complete a bubble tournament safely. We had no choice but to figure it out. Real quick note, my family and I just got back from an incredible cruise with UnCruise. Now we'd experienced what cruising was like on a big ship with thousands of people. And frankly, it just wasn't for us, but this one was completely different. It was a small boat of less than 100. We had an amazing time where we saw whales and other wildlife, inspiring nature, hiking, kayaking, and bushwhacking, which is hiking without the trails. And we received incredibly personalized service guides who get you off the beaten path and gorgeous sunsets. Everything was so easy and with no lines. They provided incredible meals, including sustainable seafood, not to mention a list of impressive cocktails. My wife, daughter, and I loved it. When we returned, I asked UnCruise to become a show sponsor, and I was excited when they agreed. Right now, they're offering special deals on cruises in Baja, Mexico, and Alaska that includes the incredible luxury, service, and adventure that we experience. To learn more, go to benleads.com slash cruise. That's benleads.com slash cruise for the latest deals. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Hey there, Lady Team Nation, and welcome back to another great episode. Today, hang on to your hats. Today, I have for you Lisa Baird, who is the CEO of Next Up. And Next Up is a 20-year-old organization that brings professional women, allies, and corporate partners together to champion gender equity and advance all women in their careers. They are a powerful growing community of over 17,000 members and 300 plus regional and corporate sponsors. Just wait till you hear about her incredible career, including commissioner of the National Women's Soccer League. She signed the first ever broadcast and streaming partnerships with CBS and Twitch and delivered record-breaking audiences and doubled league sponsorship revenue. Hello. She was also CMO of New York Public Radio, which happens to be the largest independent public radio station in the U.S. She was CMO of the U.S. Olympic Committee, y'all, the world's largest national Olympic committee, responsible for oversight for over 46 sports federations. And she launched one of the most valuable Olympic brands, Team USA. Yeah, we use Team USA just all the time. Like it's common vernacular now, but there was no Team USA until Lisa got in there and made it happen. SVP marketing and consumer products for the NFL and also served as senior leader for IBM at General Motors and Procter and Gamble. She's also currently a board member for Cantaloupe, the software and payments company providing end-to-end technology solutions for the unattended retail market. You've probably seen those. And she's also held board positions at Elite and Fox Racing and has the MBA and BA from Penn State, where she received the Distinguished Alumni Award, which is the university's highest honor presented to its alumni. When was a leadership moment when you had to react very quickly to a crisis or opportunity? Well, I think 
the the one that comes to mind was I joined the National Women's Soccer League as their first ever commissioner, and I was a, a female commissioner. Not surprising, given it's a uh, the leading women's professional soccer league. And I joined on uh, March eighth, and I shut the league down on March tenth due to COVID. And mm-hmm. it was a shocking day because it, it, that day it was about like I would say two weeks before the rest of the world kind of the rest of the world shut down, but. Sports industry obviously is built on live events, and there are an incredibly uh, a number of smart people. And Adam Silver, on March 9th, he was the first one to shut down the NBA. And boy, in 24 hours, you saw an entire industry shut down. And they were right. You know, they didn't know what they were dealing with. Everybody took a pause. Some were very tough. Some were out of season. Some were in. But I think mm-hmm. watching what we didn't know. And actually taking a pause as opposed to saying, you know what, let's push forward, let's push forward. But looking around and saying, you know what, we've got to figure out the safety. We've got to figure out a whole new plan here. And then really from then on, building back block by block our game plan. And no one had the playbook for it. So everybody created their own. You know, although we talked to one another and we learned from one another, basically every league got back in their own way. And I think it was like April late April sometime, we had done our plans. We'd done our medical plans, our safety plans. We had renegotiated our media contracts. We'd signed sponsorships. We had completely redone the competition schedule to a very abbreviated season in a bubble, created all the bubble tournaments. And then I woke up, we were announcing that day, and I woke up that day, turned on TV, and I saw Gary Bettman, who's the commissioner of National Hockey League, announcing that they were coming back. And I was like, oh, good for them. You know, Gary's an experienced, incredibly successful commissioner. And then all of a sudden, when we did our announcement on CBS that that morning, I started watching it in. And we were the Little Women's Soccer League. We were the first ones back. We were the first ones back. We were the first ones to complete a bubble tournament safely with no no incidences of COVID, um, which, by the way, I rely, I will give complete, utter credit to the doctors the medical doctors that guided our protocols. But I'm also going to give credit to the players because they mm. so responsibly um, participated in the competition, bravely sponsored, you know, and uh, we had a huge success and it kind of, I think, helped mm. pave the way for subsequent successes. And it's now doing extraordinarily well. Well, a huge congratulations, Lisa, on that. And I mean, that's what leadership is. It starts with declaring a vision. And it starts with, there is no roadmap. And you declared a vision, I guess, for safety in the moment and what could be possible even in the world of COVID. And y'all, you may be listening to this down the road a ways from COVID, but at the time, COVID was killing people and it was a really terrible time for everybody. And a lot of people are home and they're missing their sports. And uh, to give us a diversion, right, from this, something we could support. And it was a really special time. And it's really amazing that a league that, I mean, somebody had to be first. And you all were willing to take that risk. And kudos to you for doing it safely because some of the other bubble sports did not quite go as safely as the women's It soccer. was 
it was a wild ride. If you know, maybe someone will write a write a book on it, not me, but someone will write a book on it. But like, you know, when people say we had no choice but to figure it out because we were a very even though we were 10 years old, like there was moments, I mean, we needed to come back uh just to ensure that our league could survive financially. And so one of the things I did during that period was I'd heard about something called the PPP loan. And within a week, I was able to get one and we were able to pay our players. We completely needed that loan just to bridge us through the time. And to this day, I will say this, I'm going to thank uh, J.P. Morgan Chase because they really helped us survive. And uh, I developed a relationship and a partnership with them mm. to this day. And they weren't, they didn't care just about the big, they cared about a little women's soccer league and uh, they helped us make sure that we could bridge that time. Well, that's how the PPP loan was supposed to work. I think, <laughs> right. Like able to get people through where they need to go. And these players have yeah. to stay in shape. They have to keep training because when they come back, they've got to play at a very high level and uh, you can't just take no. off and like go on va- vacation. No. Uh, so mm-hmm. I mean, what, what a great time for leadership. I'm curious, you personally, what was your routine like or what was your life like during that period when you you, you take over as your first shot at commissioner? You've got to shut, shut the league down and uh, navigate that. It was hard. You know, it goes it all it goes to like, I think one of the first things that I think any leader would say. And Ben, you would say this, having advised so many CEOs in your time, which is. You've got to develop a team around you, not just your people and your staff, but the team that's going to support you. And I had great owners. I had incredibly good relationships with our our two, our union reps at the time who helped partner with us. And we got the first agreement done to pay the players Hmm. during this period, which was uh, really important um, for us. But it was the team that came together, whether it was doctors, our broadcasters, my staff. And I remember, you know, we were a small league. I remember working with my head of sport operations and my general counsel and my staff to kind of like create and my owners to create new competitions. Well, let's do this or create. I wrote medical protocols. Now, they were all directed by the doctors and approved by the doctors. But I remember writing sanitization protocols for locker rooms. Like when yeah. you're a small yeah. company, you're doing it all, but it comes down to like the faith and the the yeah. vision you instill with your team. So I'd say uh, like every leader, you're only as effective as the team around you. Mm. Love that. Love that perspective. Now I want to have a lot of more sports oriented questions because you've really been Olympics and I mean, NFL, all these things, but I've got a, a one of the things that's interesting too is, your background with NPR. And of course, I'm in the podcasting world. Yeah. And NPR has been around a long time. And you've been involved with, you know, interviewing so many leaders and, and being in that conversation around radio. What do you think leaders in general can learn from NPR? I'd say there's two aspects to NPR and and I will, you know, freely admit I'm hardly objective about it, having worked there and actually been a huge supporter of public media, um, but public radio in particular, you know, today, local news has almost dis- disappeared from the landscape. 
It's what's happened, right? It is what has happened as we've shape-shifted around the internet and around um, different models and, you know, local news and local papers were supported so many years and they brought us those local stories. Mm -hmm. To this day, while NPR does an enormously great job with national and international stories, it's built on a bedrock of public radio stations that actually still carry the burden of creating those local stories. What I learned from it were three things. Number one, the the audio experience is really between the listener and the interview or the story. Hmm. And that ability to take in a story or news or truth or something different that might change how you feel about something is really extraordinary. That that one-on-one listening experience, you don't mm. have that a lot of times with TV or even with the, the written worm. Mm. It's a one-to-one, it's a very intimate experience. And it challenges, because it's audio, it challenges journalists to tell stories mm. that are profoundly life-changing. And I'm a big believer because it is a medium and it is NPR really has a standard of journalism that still today is a standard for all journalism. They fact check. Mm. They do, even though they might have, people might think there's a certain political bent. Having been around some of, you know, reporters who've done 30 years or journalists have done 30 years, they fact check. They tell mm. both sides of the story. And I'm a big believer that we need that in society to continue to do what we're doing to kind of be that you know, democratic society. So I'm sorry to be subjective, but to all you NPR fans out there, keep listening. Yeah, it's a powerful medium. Why do you think, or may not why you think, what do you think about audio that makes it such a powerful medium? You sort of, you started started going down that road with the intimacy of it and being a one-to-one, but I think about like video, I think about leaders trying to communicate their messages over email, uh, video, uh, you know, short form social media. And yet we have this longer form audio. We have long form audio. I think it helps people like, look, there's no doubt about it. Attention span has uh, changed with video and with short formats. And I'm a fan. Don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, I watch a lot of sports on TV still and broadcast and um, I read voraciously, but there's something Mm -hmm. about the audio form that, creates an attention span so you can and you will find listeners who will listen you know 30 straight minutes to hear a full story as opposed to scrolling through and catching a headline or something that is interesting they're going to look at and they're going to look and they're going to immerse themselves in that story so it's the intimacy but it's the attention and the amount of time that you'll spend with a particular subject and it's unmatched today. So I really believe in it. And the, the third thing about audio, and I then we then we'll stop, is if you look at really great production, journalism, there's also storytelling, and I love it all, crimes and you know, the whole bit. But if you look at journalism or podcasting in general, they're gonna take a subject and they're gonna dissect it and they're gonna take you through a journey of storytelling. Pay attention to the the incredible production that accompanies that. I mean, I had the privilege of working with Jad Abumrad of Radiolab, one of the, you know, mm-hmm. masters, um, Carter Genius masters. He and his podcasting production team would compose their own music for Radiolab. So it goes from music 
It goes from voices. It goes from everything. And it all mm-hmm. keeps to make sure that, that that listener is fully engaged and taking in something and potentially changing their mind. So when you uh, were working with people that were going to do their interview, what would what would be a bit of advice that you would give someone when they were preparing for an interview? Well, I think it's advice you would tell people. Be authentic. Hmm. You know, be authentic. You know, the the thing that's great when you're in Ben, you know, with you, but with another uh, broadcaster. And I, you know, one of my favorites was having the opportunity to be interviewed by Guy Ross of How I Built This during the I pandemic. Love Guy Ross, How I Built This. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I mean, what you can yeah. do is when you have a story to tell, and you are in the presence of a great journalist or or interviewer, they're going to do the heavy lifting. They really are. And it is, it of course is the preparation. And of course it's the research, but it's also their skill, someone who will get into that story with you. And you know what? Sometimes it's a really hard story. I've been interviewed by some very tough journalists in my time, maybe with the uh, words New York Times associated with it or Wall Street Journal or others. And they're there to make sure that the listener is served, not that you're served, but the listener served, and they will do an incredible job interviewing. So I've always worked to make sure that the framework around the person being interviewed or the story being told and the interviewer is great. I will take no credit for it. I learned from the best, but Brooke Gladstone of On the Media, I mean like no one is better. And she really does a lot of the heavy lifting. She's a tough interviewer. She's one of the first, I think she was the first podcast host, which I love to say. What? The first podcast host? Forgive me, if it wasn't the first, it might've been the second, but I think Brooke Gladstone and On the Media was probably the first podcast. And I love that because um, she is a woman. Go Brooke. Oh my gosh. If you ever get the chance. what, What a cool experience. Well, so let's also let's dive back into the U.S. Olympic Committee days. Mm-hmm. So, how did you get involved in that? Because you made the leap from I guess you were working with the NFL, yeah, a sport that's not in the Olympics, into what will become Team USA. What yeah. what's the story there? So, one of the things again, back to leadership. I've had the privilege of working with some of the most amazing leaders in um, business and sports, and and in fact, in nonprofits. I was at the NFL. I was working. I worked with Paul Tagliabue, the commissioner, through his transition to Roger Goodell, and I was working for Roger. And I ended up taking a year off um, for personal reasons. And you know, I believe in the ability and um, the need sometimes to take a sabbatical when you're working. My son needed me at home and I took a year off. But one of my big clients at the NFL had been Electronic Arts, the the leading uh, video game Mm -hmm. publisher. And I worked with a gentleman who was the president and chairman of Electronic Arts at the time, um, Larry Probst. And he had then gone on to become the chairman of the Olympic Committee. And a year, I was in my sabbatical, taking some time off with my family. And he called and he said, listen, I've, I've taken on this U.S. Olympic thing. I don't know much about it. And I'm like, well, gosh, I know less. But he said, come and be the CMO. And the CMO was the chief marketing officer, but it was also really the head of all commercial arrangements. And he hired me again. And that had happened three times in my life that prior bosses had hired me to different experiences 
And I went to work for Larry and then uh, my boss, uh, the CEO, uh, Scott Blackman, and went and joined an incredible team. And I was there for a decade, went through five Olympic Games, five Paralympic Games, Mm. and had extraordinary ability to work with athletes who, frankly, do what they do to pursue their dreams. And I think it was Mm. probably one of the most profound leadership lessons I've ever had is how to really be a servant leader. Okay. Tell me more. You really teed that up for how, how to be a servant leader. What, how to what, be a servant what, leader. what in that midst taught you to be a servant leader? Obviously it's simpler and a little bit easier if you're a nonprofit, but not non, mm-hmm. not all nonprofits are, are built mm-hmm. to be servant leaders. And what you realize when you get to join something like the U S Olympic committee is that you're always putting your stakeholders first. That's not necessarily true in business. It's somewhat true. Okay. As a leader in business, you're responsible for three stakeholders, usually your shareholders, your employees, and your customers. And while that balancing act is really tough, um, and I would had I worked with Lou Gerstner, Sam Palmazano at IBM. I worked with John um, Smale at General Motors. He was one who hired me from Procter Gamble to General Motors. They always, what I started to learn is when you can clarify your purpose and you can put the mission of the company corporate in terms of purpose, you are going to always have that North Star that guides you. But it's still a bit different. When you get into a nonprofit, the stakeholder management is far more complicated. And if you look at the US Olympic Committee, we were part of the International Olympic Committee, 244 countries. So you had the ecosystem of working with the largest volunteer organization in Mm -hmm. sports and all of the complexity that came with that. We work with 46 NGBs, even though our job was to steward them. They were independent federations responsible with their own boards. We were chartered by Congress. So you have the U.S. government Mm -hmm. actually steering you and making sure that things are, and you have sponsors and broadcasters, but most importantly, you have athletes. And being able to put the athletes first is what made my time, my 10 years there, an incredible privilege. Are you looking to increase sales, grow your brand, and share your leadership message? Then check out our business podcast program. Each week, more people listen to podcasts than have Netflix accounts, and one-third of the U.S. population listens to podcasts regularly. So your customers and team are already listening to podcasts. It should be yours. Discover our five-step profitable podcast framework and what results you can expect for your company by setting up a 20-minute call with my team at benleads.com slash schedule. That's benleads.com slash schedule. What are the success things that I pick up on, uh, especially from your marketing background, is you've been able to do sponsorships and deals with very big organizations, very mm-hmm. I mean, huge organizations. And from your time at the Olympics, uh, on the Olympic Committee, and with the National Women's Soccer League, I mean, sponsorships, spo- yeah. a sponsorship rock star of monumental proportions. Thank you. What, what's been a, a, a theme or, or, or a key sort of leadership trait that, that's helped you be so darn successful in those areas? You know, it's funny, and also NPR as well. I think what really 
is the secret is a lot of nonprofits will put their mission first. And that's very important. Don't get me wrong. Fund the athletes or help us beat cancer or help us fund radio. But if you always approach a company, a sponsor and say, what are your needs? How can we fit in with what your objectives are? Which is my training as a marketer back to my days at Procter & Gamble is putting that need first, their need first. Then you could always find a collaboration to be had. It becomes a partnership. It becomes a collaboration. And you're, you're working as hard to fill their need as they are to give you the resources you need to fill your mission. And that is the secret. Not so easily done because people forget that. They always say, well, I need this because you know my particular mission is more important. But I think that's what certainly separated us at the National Women's Soccer League as well as the Olympic Committee, the Olympic and Paralympic Committee. What's been one of the more memorable ones that that sticks out for you in terms of how it really came together with the company and sponsorship? And uh, Oh, uh, yeah. no doubt. So I have a long history and relationship with the Procter & Gamble company and have worked with them all my, uh, so I started my career there and I understand the core because I started there and once a PNG or always a PNG or you understand that the, the company and why it puts brand and why it, it puts purpose first. Well, within two weeks of, of starting the US Olympic Committee, I convinced PG to do a sponsorship. And I, you know, it went up to the highest level of the companies and they said, you know what, we'll give it a try, Lisa. We get it, US Olympic Committee. It was just the US Olympic Committee at the time. But about six months into it, I was like, okay, this was hard for me to say because I sold them a big sponsorship and it had made a lot of news. And six months into it, I realized it was on the wrong track for them. Mm-hmm. And I went, okay, what do you do in this situation? You've convinced them to invest in you. You've made a big noise. In it. And I asked for a meeting with the C- CMO, Mark Pritchard. He's still the Mark Pritchard. Mm-hmm. And I got a meeting in Cincinnati and I went into his office and I said, Mark, you're going to be really disappointed in this sponsorship. Not what he was expecting to say. He was expecting to say, mm-hmm. I think he was expecting me to say how great things were and how much more money I need. And I said, no, I said, this is not going to it isn't going to work. You're not going to be happy. And it's not going to work for P&G. And, and he said, well, why? What's going on? And I said, well, you've got to realize that every single sponsor identifies the reason that they are doing it. What is it that P&G is trying to do? And I think, I don't know whether he said it or I said it, it might've been him, but we both agree that P&G does not belong in sports. They're not in the business of sports not like Nike or even, you know, other Mm. companies. And I said, you've got to understand, like, what is it that P&G is going to viscerally own and stand for in this Olympic world? You're not going to, you know, just don't be a me too. That's not P&G. You're a leading marketer of the world. And he's like, you're absolutely right. And he went away and he talked to his agency, Wyden and Kennedy, and they came up with the thank you mom campaign. And thank you, mom. See, and, and it was distilled down to one world. PNG is not in the business of sports. It's in the business of moms. And they came up with probably the most famous and the most effective marketing campaign of the Olympic world. Some might argue with that, and they might be right, Visa, but they came up with it, and it was called Thank You, Mom. And it debuted in the Vancouver Olympics, and it changed the way that people saw marketing. And I, to this day, that was... 
it was so successful mm-hmm. because Mark was such a visionary and he, they created, this is what I said to him. I said, you've got to create something for P&G. Now that's very mm-hmm. abnormal because they are in the business of Bounty and Pampers and, you know, Crest. And he created the P&G Thank You Mom campaign. And it really was brilliant because it was their first ever corporate effort. And just, and describe to the listeners just a snapshot of what that looks like, the Thank You Mom campaign. It was, if you haven't seen, go to YouTube and search PNG Thank You Mom Olympics. And what it did is instead of showing instead of showing the athletes, it made the heroes of the mothers who mm-hmm. were behind their kids getting on the ice at age, you know, five or getting up early for practice or having that first you know, competition when they're young. And it was all about the heart and soul that parents put into Mm. helping support and create these amazing athletes. And um, when I saw it for the first time, uh, one of the P&Gers showed it to me. I just went, you've got it. And it was, it just made every parent in the world understand that there's a support system behind these athletes and the athletes themselves were amazing. They, they just seeing that. And it, it, to this day, like probably one of my most fun marketing campaigns. How I've cool. And it really goes with, I'll say leadership, boldness and courageousness to be able to show up at big Procter and Gamble who'd, who'd bet big with you. And say, look, we're on the road. I don't, th- I don't think we're headed in the right direction here. I was scared. I'm- I was like, okay. But I think the other thing that I would say for the Olympics, and then we should talk about what it is. One of the things that I realized early on is now I remember I was at, you know, IBM and General Motors, and I was at the NFL. Now, NFL is a different kind of brand, right? And I worked with them. They're a very exclusive brand. There's only 1,800 athletes, players in the world that can be in the NFL. Like that is a, that is, you know, a very, very different model, right? There's only 1,800. They're the best at what they do. They're the fastest. They're the strongest. They're the, you know, when you think of the plays and the amount that, uh, NFL player has to know. I mean, people don't think of them that way. Like they study all the time because the mm. complicated nature of of a game, which is based on strategy. But when I got to the Olympics, I started to realize there was something different about the Olympics. And one of the the big bold moves I made, and I got a lot of, got a lot of heat from it initially, is there was the Olympic brands, Olympic athletes, the best at what they were doing, and there were the Paralympics, and they're very different. And at the time that I got there, the Paralympics were not, they were kind of forgotten. They were like an afterthought, right? There was, you know, some attention paid to it. I said, you know, I said, this is not right. We need a brand that can be everybody. And I developed a philosophy then about this world, which guides me today, particularly with Next Up, which I'd love to tell you about, which is that you want brands that are accessible and inclusive in this world that bring the world together. Hmm. And that was the lesson that I, got. I created the team USA brand and it met Olympic Olympian and Paralympian. And by the way, I had a lot of heat from that. Olympians are like, well, they're not like us. They don't, the competition's different. It's all different. I said, yeah, hmm. but they are because their dreams are just as important and their hard work is just as important. And the way that they inspire America is so important. And Team USA became about everybody. It became about the athletes, but it also became about Americans and how we mm. were rooting for our country. So that's chill. 
important. Multiple chills already from this interview. I just love that. So taking, bottling that up and thinking about a leader's personal brand. Mm. What advice do you have for leaders with their teams or, you know, maybe their CEOs have or, or oversee a lot of different teams themselves? What's your advice for personal branding based on what you've learned from all these other organizations that you've worked with? That's a hard one. Leaders today have a harder road because of internet, social media, the voracious 24-hour news cycle, the amount of the demand for leaders to put not only their company's point of view out there, but their personal point of view. Sometimes it can be a very risky road for a lot of leaders. And it's a tough one. And you know what? You should have great advisors. You should have smart HR professionals for your employees. You should have customer panels that represent your customers. You ought to have communications people that understand the landscape better. But at the end of the day, the leader is going to have to make choices. And sometimes they're very lonely for what they stand for and, and what they'll do. And it's not always the corporate brand. Sometimes it's the personal brand. Mm-hmm. Um, the best leaders are always going to make that choice from an internal compass mm. of their beliefs. I do believe that. And sometimes they're going to, that's going to be a rough road for them. You've got to believe in the long game there. And that's really hard to do sometimes when you are in the madness and the chaos of news today. But I really, really thank those leaders that remain uh, morally strong towards their belief and are continuing to push their organizations, either whether they're political or commercial or nonprofit or NGOs, whatever they are, you see them working towards that long game and they don't compromise their beliefs in doing that. That sounds very moral, but you know, sometimes it's also for commercial reason too. Yeah. It's it's an interesting day and age because I think companies expect their leaders to be out front, but only in certain ways, perhaps. And or, or they want to put like guardrails on it or on a very, you know, sometimes leaders have to turn their LinkedIn profile over to their PR people and their PR people are the only people that publish on their LinkedIn profile because they don't trust their executives, to it, but they're, but, but yet they're continuously posting very vanilla yeah. repost type stuff on a, on a CEO's LinkedIn profile. I see it every day. It doesn't happen a lot necessarily. I, I see both sides of the spectrum. So it's not easy, uh, but I think it's important. And I think you're going here is to think about it as a leader. Imagine that, you know, five, 10 years, two or three decades from now, people are going to go back and they're going to look at your, and they're going to look at your post. At least your family might, right? What are they going to see? Is it something that you talking about things that you really cared about that try to bring unity and you were trying to lead or was it just, you know, the opposite, you know, very negative type stuff, or was it just kind of bland? And I, I'm just, I, I, it's just changed so darn much. It has. And, we're, and I feel like for me and our, and my podcast, that's my vision for what we are. We really want to give them a positive megaphone where they can 
create a message that they stand behind. But we'll see. But but we'll see. One of the things I admire most about leaders is in today when the demand to comment and say something and do something and stuff is incessant. I admire those leaders that listen and maybe don't do that, that they are choiceful enough, not out of fear or not out of, you know, hesitancy, out Mm. of the desire to put something out there when they fully believe it. And I can name, you know, I can name 10 that I admire for being Mm. very, very choiceful because then when they do say something, you're paying even more attention. So, you know, sometimes social media is for listening, not for talking. Mic drop. (laughs) I don't think (laughs) so. From the CMO from NPR. Yeah. Sometimes it's for listening and not for talking. Well, it's interesting. I think that could be a post even, hey, we have a lot going on right now. I'm choosing to listen first. And and we're going to come out with our thoughts on this. But right now we're... We're thinking about We're it. I think you know having a knee-jerk reaction often gets people into trouble so quickly. Is there a uh, memorable knee-jerk reaction that you remember seeing in your in your time that you're like, yeah, that was one that I I think there is a like there's so much pressure to do something immediately, and you know I can't think of a particular one, but one thing is like something might happen in the world and people demand that you say something within 24 hours. You know, it used to be, this is thing, things that worry me. It used to be, okay, say something and support it. Then it was say something and support it and agree, agree with it. Right. Then it was say something, support it, do something about it within 24 hours. And Mm -hmm. now the thing that worries me the most is it's not only, say something, support it, agree with it, do something and condemn the other side. That's where I feel like we're getting into dangerous territory. So I want to remind everybody to listen and maybe sometimes it's going to take a little bit longer than the appetite of the journalists or the news, let's just call them news, and hold your thing. And the best leaders do do that. They listen and they're thoughtful and they they don't react in the moment because of some fake pressure to do yeah. so. But I don't like the that. condemning that I see nowadays. Um, yeah, I I'm, don't. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. It's one thing to support, but it's one thing to condemn. And it's and you you really get into dangerous territory, especially we don't know all the facts. All the facts on anything are rarely in are not even instantly available, even NPR, right? They don't know everything immediately. And so it takes time for these things to come uh, come to fruition so we can really know what the scoop is on it. Man, that, that that's so good. It's such great advice for all of us to think about as we're posting. I can take this in so many different directions now. But one of the things you said earlier that really piqued my interest, you're like, you know, one of the things that happened for you in your career is you had three different bosses hire you. and. Yeah. What, like reflecting back on that time, I can see that being a key to success because you got you got hired into even cooler roles each and every time as they got promoted and moved up into interesting opportunities. What was the key to being front of mind or 
top of the list for these leaders? I've been described in different ways by the leaders, but I, I would say that, you know, it's something that I'm hoping is changing. The The people that have mentored, been, you know, hired me or mentored me have been men. And I think it's just because when I, where I started my career, there weren't that many women in top leadership positions. So I ended up being mentored by men and I took a lot of lessons from how they did it. Uh, you know, John Smale was the um, president of P&G when I was there. And then he took on the chairmanship of General Motors when it was going into bankruptcy. I mean, this was the time the, the you know, you don't remember this, but the fortune cover with IBM, Sears and General Motors on it and the pictorial of dinosaurs saying they're going to go, by the way. And, and I remember a speech John gave when he was leaving the chairmanship of General Motors and it impacted me. And he said, make sure you're the clock maker, not the clock watcher, like make the clock, make things make them last, make them a fraternity. And he took on that chairmanship. I asked him, he really, he hired me to come there and I didn't want to go to automotive. I was very happy in healthcare and consumer goods. And I said, John, you had this amazing career at hmm. P&G and you did it all. Why did you take on General Motors that was about to go into bankruptcy? And at the time, he just answered me very clearly. It was a personal phone call. And he said, someone had to do it. Someone had to take responsibility. And so each same thing, Larry Probst, when he took on the Olympic Committee, it was at a very tough time. The first year we were there, we lost the bid for the 2016 Games in Chicago. To, it was a it was a worldwide humiliation. We brought Barack Obama over to Copenhagen and we were sent packing first one out and around. It was humiliating yeah. for America, but it taught me, Larry taught me how to he he we were exploded it was on the headlines of every person and slowly over time he built the relationships he did he built the relationships back in the olympic world that eventually in concert with los angeles and casey wasserman enabled us to win the right to host a game again and it, i took from him the perseverance and the patience of building relationships and how he did that and you know, the third one uh, was the gentleman who got me to go to the NFL. I was in corporate America. I wasn't in sports. It was a gentleman by the name of Phil Garasio who'd hired me at General Motors along with John Svale. And he said, Lisa, take a risk. Go and do the sports. You're going to be able to use the platform to do things that no other industry can. And he was right particularly with the National Women's Soccer League, where I really took it on to make women's sports important and uh, worth investing in. And hmm. I love that I do that now full-time as the CEO of Next Step. Well, so I want to talk about Next Step to wind this thing up, but so what was it about you? What were you doing? All those people said, wait a minute, Lisa, something special about Lisa. I don't know. Maybe they couldn't find anybody else. They didn't know anybody else's. I was in their mobile number. Um, I think, look, I, I'm a good marketer. I'm known for being a really good marketer, and I'm really proud of that. At, at the end of the day, I love serving the consumer. And when P&G called me and gave me that lifetime award, I was like, wow, you have so many people to pick from. What are you thinking? Um, but I've always served the consumer, and I'm really 
proud. I'm really proud of that award because it's like one of those awards that means nothing to anybody outside of P&G, but when you have the admiration of your team. So I think it was being a marketer, but I also think it was mm-hmm. having a work ethic, which I'm really proud of. And I'm really proud that I've instilled it in my children because work ethic and work ethic is really important. And I think for me, that's something I would, I will work until the problem solved. And I think that's the third thing is I love big, thorny, gnarly, complicated problems. And it just gets my brain going and surround, I get to surround myself with creative people. I'm really thrilled and happy that I have the staff I have at Next Step because you get to problem solve. And so I think that that was probably part of it. Marketing. The big thorny ethic, problems, problem great solve. marketing. Great relationship builder, probably in that. Great relationship builder. Uh, man, so many cool things. So, so winding this up, I know, I know you got to run here, and I dang it, I got so many other questions. But what is going on with? I mean, next next up sounds really cool. What, it, what are you doing? Well, here's what it is, and I, thank you for giving me the opportunity to tell me a little story. Yeah. I, I will do it with passion. Next up was started, gosh, twenty one years ago. And it was started because Bobby O'Hare said, listen, I think, well, it was started by Coca-Cola, actually. They were they were the ones that wrote a check along with Walmart and P&G. And they mm-hmm. said, you know, we need to do something to advance women. This was 20 years ago. So we've been doing this for 20 years with corporate partners, the, the leading companies in the world who really care about advancing women. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know, we've got to have a an association for women and funded, but also pushed by the leading corporations that want to bring women up in, in, in business. And so for 20 years, we've been doing that quite successfully. We went through a branding change uh, two years ago. It was before I started, but it was um, called the National um, the Network for Executive Women. And two years ago, it was changed to Next Up. When I say that my favorite saying about Next up is it's this, it's inclusive is the new exclusive that club. Like when you create associations, you need to make sure that you are bracing all the ability, uh, all the people that want to advance gender equity. And I'm really proud of the fact that not only do we work to advance women in business, but we've been a leader in advancing women of color. We're also a leader in including men. So we have probably 15% of our association membership is is men. We call them allies. I call them advocates because they're advocating for equity in the workplace. And our mission goes from, you know, people entering the workforce all the way up to the C-level who is really engaged in in making systemic change. Mm. Sounds like a really cool organization. And you're pulling from your superpowers. I mean, everything that you've aligned it like like you've done in your career with sports, with building great relationships, with helping companies. I guess it, like that whole PNG experience where you're able to help them think about their brand and how yep. you know it can be integrated in a philanthropic and nonprofit way. I mean, what what a great way to just be and have this convergence of all these amazing parts of your background. So I'm excited to see. What next up is going to be like? And I've got a twelve-year-old daughter. Hey, and uh, she's next up. She is next up. All right. <laughs> Thanks for joining me today, Lisa. Thank Great you job. So much, Ben. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. I hope this works out well for you. And and thanks for letting me talk about next up a little bit. I love it, and I'm passionate and dedicated to advancing women. 
Would you or your CEO be a good fit for this podcast? If you know a uniquely talented leader who has a story to share and a message to deliver, then we'd love to host them on the show. Go to benleads.com slash apply to fill out a quick form where you can let us know a little bit about yourself and my team will take a look to see if we're a good fit. That's benleads.com slash apply. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.